0: This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. I do not see how I can.
1: But how? It's impossible.
2: I I know. I said I know. I'll work it. I'll work it. Yeah, somehow. Goodbye and thanks. What for a measly 20 quid? Oh, no, for knowing me all these years? Still being a friend? Well, it used to be witches.
3: At least they don't burn you. Good luck, Jack.
2: at that time, in 1947, when yeah. I started, it was very fashionable to have bomb sites because there were plenty of them. Yeah. Uh, spivs were tremendously important long before they thought of Teddy Boys, mm-hmm. and it, it was kind of fashionable. Films of violence were an immediate reaction from the war, yeah. you know. But you never were a a, a, a mm-hmm. bicep boy, were you? <laughs> no, I wasn't. Yeah. There was a wonderful time when the rank organisation decided that I should be. My head was too small, my legs were too long, and I was too skinny. Yeah. So they went to great expense and got uh, these, you know, m- weight yeah. bars, which I couldn't move. Uh, we got the things sent down, they came off a truck, and they lay where they were for about six years. Yeah. Um. It was your picture. How would you, you briefly, briefly describe your part? It's difficult to describe it briefly, but briefly in a sort of uh, capsule. Yeah. It's the story, as you know yourself, as you saw it, yeah. you know, of uh, a barrister who's happy to marry. It but who is finally blackmailed and destroyed by a previous relationship with a man which could or could not have been uh, a homosexual one. Yes. What
4: crime linked an aging hairdresser and a famous star of the theater. This is impertinent, and I may be mistaken, but do you ever receive an envelope like that containing a demand for money? They are all victims,
2: victims of... What? Look how he's behaving now. What's happened to his integrity? Mel's to become a QC, Laura. Eventually a judge, even. Is he going to sit on the bench knowing that he himself has covered up a serious crime?
4: They're going to call me filthy names. My friends are going to lower their eyes, and my enemies say they always guessed. I don't want you a part of that Roman holiday. I love you too deeply for that.
5: Hello, I'm Tim, and I'm here with my friend Ros. Hello. And for the next hour, you are listening to... Music for Films
0: on Resonance 104.4 FM and ResonanceFM.com.
5: And you can find an archive of all our old shows on TheBeekeepers.com. And more besides... Like our extended podcast, More Music for Films, which you can also subscribe to with your podcasting application of choice. Yes, indeed. So every month we talk to interesting people about the music...
0: Well, sometimes just each other.
5: And the films...
0: Of our past and present and future.
5: And the music for films. Sweet strains. And this month, it's May, it's a day in May, and we're talking about people who are, in many cases, gay. Yes,
0: we're looking back at the London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival, Flair, which was in March... And we're looking at its gala presentation on the first night against the law, starring Andrew Scott, which is the BBC's film in honor of the 50th anniversary of partial decriminalization of male homosexuality. And it's about the case of Peace of Wild Blood, a gay man who was slung into jail for. Notionally having sex, and who got very angry and wrote a book and then testified to the Wolfenden Committee on the decriminalisation of homosexuality. And many think that his book and his testimony had a major role in the development of a parliamentary will to decriminalise. We're also talking extensively about lesbian and gay film festivals to Theresa who is a scholar working on women's film festivals and LGBT film festivals, and to Brown Robinson, who for some years has been the chief programmer at the London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival, now Flair, and before that was one of the junior programmes. And we're also talking, because we're getting through a lot of territory, about a film from the period of decriminalisation... Victim with Dirk Bogard which is a wonderful thriller and a great piece of propaganda and many people feel that it had a colossal effect on public opinion we're talking about all of these things for ages for an hour and longer in the podcast
5: to start us off we're kind of going back to the beginning we're going back to 1961 when Victim which you heard the trailer of at the start of the show and some bits of When that was released, uh, it was before decriminalisation and a scene in Victim where Dirk Bogart's barrister character is trying to uh, find out where this young man who's disappeared has got to. He goes into a bookshop in a little alleyway
0: off the Sharon Cross Road.
6: How dare you come in my shop? Sorry, what have your troubles to do with me? You ruin my life. Boy, Barrett was happy here with me, I'd have taken him into partnership, he'd have had a home here. You destroyed all that. Do you realize what you did? I realize everything.
5: And that's where we are, we're in St. Martins Court, WC2 on a lovely spring day. And we're standing between, appropriately enough, Wyndham's Theatre and the Noel Coward Theatre. We're at the stage door of the Noel Coward mm-hmm. Theatre, where there's a revival of Half a Sixpence on. Well, there you go. Also, yeah. we're going to talk a little bit about the director, Basil Frieden, who yes. made another very important film with Dirk Bogod in, The Blue Lamp.
0: And the Blue Lamp, the definitive juvenile delinquency movie, which also created, though it, in the movie, He spoiler, dies. Um, Dixon of Dot Green. But he came back in a television show forever.
5: So, Ros, we're in a bit of the West End. We're in kind of theater land in the West End. Now, in a previous adventure, when you were, not to put too fine a point on it, a trans sex worker in Soho. Well,
0: I was never really, I mean, in, I was hanging out in Soho with sex workers. I was not really, I was doing occasional sex work as an escort out of an office in Soho. But I wasn't really I was never hustling in the streets in Soho.
5: Let's be clear about that. You were altogether better class. I was of by then better class. I
0: would had, had i got my fingers burned in Chicago and you know there we go. But on the other hand my flatmates, they were all working in clip joints and street clipping. So,
5: you know, there you go. I
0: knew Soho I knew their Soho as well as my own.
5: So you know, the the street which is still although Soho's gentrifying, we're gonna talk about that in a second, even though Soho's gentrifying, there's still at least one street in Soho which is associated with London's gay community, Old Compton Street. Yes. So less than ten minutes walk away, you've got part of Soho which is still a little bit seamy, a little yeah. bit
0: leery, and just off there you've got running between Dean Street and Wardour Street, you've got Meard Street, which was the home of the Golden Girl, which was the clip joint where my friends worked.
5: And you've had this connection between the film industry and that kind of windmill theatre dodgy end of the entertainment industry in Soho up that way and less than 10 minutes walk away this is the West End you know you've got mm-hmm. David Tennant's in uh, Don Juan in Soho in one theatre we've got half a in the other this is respectable theatre land that's here for yeah. tourists. What's the significance of St Martin's Court and this little alleyway where we are Relative to See Me Soho, going back to 1961, going back to the world when it was not just criminal to be a gay man, but it would ruin your life if you were found yeah. out.
0: Well, I mean, there are various places around here where that were discreet little clubs that went on forever. Um, there were clubs on in the upper stores of st- upper floors of buildings all over this area, if you knew where to look.
5: And what was the What would have been... I mean, obviously, you weren't around here in 1961 because you were 12. Yeah. But from what you know about the history of this part of London, what was the difference between this part of London in 1961 for gay men and Soho in 1961?
0: This was much posher. Um, Soho, you had a lot of young, slightly messed up people with slightly messy lives, sitting in cafes hoping to find trade. I mean, really, Shaftesbury Avenue was the dividing line. North of Shaftesbury Avenue was, was bandit country, but also where, if you weren't well-heeled and posh, you know, where you, found, where you found your life and where people who were well-heeled and posh came and found
5: you. Well, let's go and have a look at um, the senior part of the West End up in Soho. Yes, let's do that. So we wandered up from... St. Martin's Court to Frith Street Frith Street, on the edge of Soho and next to a cinema, the Curzon Soho, which is facing demolition because this is where Crossrail is going to be built in a couple of years. Ross, what do you think about...?
0: I think it's a disaster, a travesty, one of London's best art houses gone. For no particularly good reason, um, it should be preserved because there's. They'll also be gutting the northern fringes of
5: Chinatown. So if this, where we're standing now, this recording may now last longer than the building. Yeah. When this building's gone, what will have been lost? I mean, for people who are who will never get to visit this corner of. Street and Shaftesbury Avenue.
0: It's just another of the dying breed of great London art house cinemas.
5: So let's wander a little bit into Soho. Yeah. Before we go back to the studio. So for people who are not from London who maybe haven't visited before or maybe even people who are from London but don't have the same insight into Soho that you do as somebody who is it fair to say has knocked around a fair old bit. A fair old bit. There are lots
0: of bits of Soho that I don't really know because I know by repute. I mean, I've never been a habitué of the French pub because I'm never that big a drinker.
5: Um, But if you were, they'd only serve you in half pints.
0: Exactly. And just along a bit further, we have Old Compton Street, down the
5: heart of Gay Soho. In the time that we've been talking, dear listener, we've walked up Frist Street, and now this is effectively... The gay epicentre of the West End of London, arguably of England or Britain. It's one of the more important...
0: But it always was, even before people went on about it. I mean, just up there is, is the Polo Bar, which is a, a very old, not very good Italian restaurant that's been around forever and was quite gay back in the day. There's the Bar Italia. You know, coffee shop, the place where it's hung Um for, they used to be Jimmy the Greeks, um, which was a Greek restaurant with a adapted for English tastes, which was around, I first ate there in what, 65, 66.
5: So this, this is five or six years after victim was made. In 1961, when homosexuality was still a criminal offence and could get you into serious trouble, probably ruin your life if you were yeah. rumbled. In 1961, in this, the centre of gay London, what was there to do if you were gay or a lesbian or bisexual or trans? Yeah. And what, what signs were there that this was the gay thoroughfare?
0: Ah, precious few. I mean, there were just a lot of cafes, some of which were gay-friendly, others of which were not. There were a lot of very nice Italian delicatessens and restaurants.
5: Some I, of which... As they still are, one we're walking yeah. past now.
0: We're walking past uh,
5: Patisserie Ballery, mm-hmm. which has been there most of my life. life. Well, Ross, thank you so much for taking us on this trip around your Soho. It really yeah. has been a treat. So that was us at Charing Cross, and now we have retreated to our bastion of the permissive society, the studios at Residence FM. I'm going to channel Lord Helsham when I say that line now. Yes. This bastion of a permissive society, Resonance FM, in South London.
0: Hmm. Quentin Hogg.
5: So what, what, one of the things we were talking about while we were outside a minute ago uh, was that Charing Cross and that little street, you know, next to the, the stage door of some theatres and, you know, around the back of yeah. that Shaftesbury Avenue area, it's not really Soho. It's not the world... Was that you were part no, of when no, you were not. a sex worker and you were hanging out in biddies in the 80s. It's a more genteel, discreet world, but it was for many gay men, for many yeah. LGBTQ people when yeah. Victim was made in 1961, that was... One of the meat racks. That was one of their worlds. And if you walk through that door of that bookshop where that gentleman's making a, a cup of tea and is interrupted by Dirk Bogard, How would you know? How would you know that anything unseemly is going on? Well, it was all about discretion. We also went up to the Curzon and talked about how the cinemas are changing around there and that kind of how lairy, seamy, dodgy Soho is kind of going and perhaps returning to that world of discretion and gentility and people not asking questions.
0: And eating cupcakes at
5: the same time. So what's the link between a pot of tea in a Charing Cross bookshop and and a kind of Etsy-friendly... Boutique cupcake shop now.
0: Well, history, that sense of keeping calm and carrying on, of one mustn't, you mustn't complain.
5: Yes, not grumbling.
0: Not grumbling. Things are as they are.
5: I feel that it's better to have the seediness out in the open. Although I can remember Soho when it was still quite rough.
0: Yeah, it was dangerous. Bad things could happen to you in Soho, Mm. even in the 80s. Mm. You know, you could be put in a situation where you had to do what someone wanted and it wasn't what you wanted because they had power and you did not. It was not a nice place.
5: So, I mean, something that you can hear from various clips we have already played... um, and I've I'll, I'll put together a little sequence that we'll listen to in a minute. But what I want to talk about before we start talking about LGBTQ London now and the importance mm-hmm. of film festivals to LGBTQ culture yeah. is that world that we thought we'd left behind. I mean, I didn't because I was, obviously wasn't around in yeah. 1961 when a Victim came yeah, out. Well, I it. wasn't. I was 12. That world that we thought was left behind. But in a sense, is it coming back?
0: Well, who knows? I mean, you know, one can see these things. One sees what's going on. I mean, you know the fact that in a faraway country of which we know little, the the Supreme Leader has announced that he will kill every every gay in the country by May 26th.
5: And that, in the same way that people are kind of not thinking that anyone's actually going to seriously call for, I don't know, a hijab ban? Oh, they will. Um, that no-one is seriously going to try and repeal uh, the fact that gays and lesbians can now have a civil partnership and be Well, they
0: actually have marriages, but yeah. they, will, they will take away marriage and then so take away civil partnerships. And they will do that, if it suits them.
5: There's, so there's this medley I've put together which includes um, part of a BBC film, uh, Consenting Adults. It also includes stuff from Hollywood UK, Richard Lester's series about... British filmmaking in the 60s and also a, t- a two-part arena very, very good two-part arena about Dirk Bogard and yeah. Dirk Bogard's memoirs um, and it includes this sequence that we'll start with where Sylvia Sims who plays Dirk Bogard's wife in Victim mm-hmm. is watching the f- perhaps the most famous scene which Bogard wrote where he p- opens up and confesses to his wife he the fact that he has much. feelings for yeah. this young man um, so we'll listen to that we'll listen to these other sequences but the thing in putting these Why is um, clips together I I that really interest me. It's this issue of class.
2: Yes. And so did you. Sylvia Sims played his wife, Laura.
1: Look at the picture. There's as much pain in your face as there is in his. You were attracted to that boy as a man would be to a girl. I don't suppose he had to choose this film. He must have been offered other things. But he did choose it, you see. I can't I love you too much to stop I thought you loved me if you do what did you feel for him I and he obviously right felt know. about it very passionately because he in, in the scene
4: you won't be you, no, it, it will was you. terrible Until you ripped it out of me
1: and deeply moving
4: I stopped seeing him because I wanted him do you understand because I wanted him <sighs> now what good has that done you
2: the lawyer who read the script of victim <laughs> for the first time said he could find nothing libelous in it but he wished that he could wash his hands and his mouth
7: mm.
2: ah, come on you know it wasn't such a great deal
1: i don't think it occurred to me then that dirk was perhaps homosexual i don't know i don't think it occurred to me I was just the woman, being the woman, and imagining how I'd feel if a man as lovely as him, and whom I'd loved for a long while, turned around and said, well, actually, I wanted this boy.
3: Despite Lord Wolfenden's famous report advocating reform, they could still face long prison sentences, often with hard labour.
2: We don't see why this particular form of sexual behavior which we regard as most of us as morally repugnant why that and that only should be a criminal offense i'm a born odd man out far but i've never corrupted the normal why should i be forced to live outside the law because i find love in the only way i can you're a star Calloway. people like you set a fashion if the young people knew how you lived might they think that an example to follow of course youth must be protected we all agree about that but that doesn't mean that the consenting males in private
1: should be pilloried by an antiquated law, and made meat for blackmail. If you're old enough to vote,
2: you're old enough to choose your own way of life.
1: Herbert. sir, Mr. Farrer is leaving.
2: Thank you. This is a little glimpse into the sort of under underworld at that time of... Uh, this man is a well-known actor, of course, Dennis Price. He's playing a well-known actor. And... Uh, it was intended to be a glimpse of, of the sort of way in which uh, homosexuals had had to live at the time. Thank God you're at home. I'll be around in 20 minutes. All right? What thread of
1: strange emotion puts this brilliantly successful barrister on the wrong side of the law?
4: This is a human problem, but we never mentioned what it was. It could have been measles that the man had. And I said I'd do it, on condition that I could write a scene in which the man confronted his wife or his wife confronted him and he had to admit that, yes, he did love another man. People probably didn't know what homosexuality was, but they knew they were affected by it because, I mean, the numbers haven't increased. They've always been, I suppose, the same. I don't know. Um, And people did marry because it was secret and got married and, and had hideously miserable lives with each other. And the words must have been familiar. Mostly, of course, the word queer meant that you had a bad stomachache or you got flu. You're always a bit queer today. But in the end, people did know um, that it meant something rather more. And the the, the 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 film was not campaigning, but it was simply saying, this happens.
3: It might have been a problem at the box office, but Victim did play a part in the 1967 reform.
4: And it did help, because I know from Lord Aaron, it helped to alter the... Voting, his, his, f- he, he fought for the Wolfenden Report against as, as hard as he could because of seeing that. So that was good. But it, it, it made them all a bit squint-eyed when they saw me, you know, the bosses at Frank. They weren't at all pleased with me. In my area, Chelsea,
6: that is, the men that go in for it do it for the love of the thing. Half the thrill comes in the chase, I'm sure of it. There's always fresh ground to conquer, shall I say. Their parties are of a very peculiar sort, sir. And they like to meet fresh blood, too. Always on the lookout for something different. The finer arts, you might say.
7: And is that what Sir John Gilgood was doing when you arrested him? Auditioning, you might say?
6: In a manner of speaking. We get them from every walk of life. I've had serving soldiers, members of the clergy, Americans. We get people from any occupation that has an air of artificiality.
1: Hairdressing, dress designing, that sort of thing.
6: They uh, like to make themselves up, some of them. Adopt female attire, put on a mincing sort of gait. Ricking of perfume. Plucking their eyebrows. Wave their hair. Diet.: it. Paint their fingernails.
3: How do these people behave when you um, arrest them? Do they panic?
6: Well, sir, to accuse a man of importuning male persons is nearly as serious as accusing him of murder. It is the most awful thing that could happen to a man. Yes, sir. First-timers, like Sir John, they do panic. But the regulars, they take it pretty much for granted. One man, I've arrested him eight times. He knows he's been done to rights, goes into court the next morning, pleads guilty, pays his fine, that's it. It depends what the man has to lose. So many people get off? Only lost one case in my life, sir.
3: But if they go home um, to one another's flats, say...
6: Then there's nothing we can do. Unless one turns the other in. Roz, the
5: victim starts with a sequence on a building site. Dirk Bogard has feelings. Yeah. You know, when he says, I wanted him. I wanted him. He's talking about not just a younger man. There's not just the kind of suggestion of pederasty. It's the fact that he was a builder and Dirk Bogart is a barrister. Yeah. The great flap, the concern of the establishment in 1961 when this film came out was that, and let's also reflect on the fact that Dennis Price is playing an esteemed actor and we heard that sequence. Two interesting things. One is... It's the world where John Gilgood could have been caught cottaging in a public toilet with a butler or a builder or, yeah. God forbid, a black man. Yeah. There was that going on. But the other thing I like about that. Social
0: is, mixing, terrible threat to things as they are. You know, you might think the
5: working classes are human. I also like the fact that Dirk Bogard was doing this very interesting thing in Victim, not playing a matinee idol, but playing an upstanding barrister who, even though he's bi or queer, we're not quite yeah. sure. But he's clearly in love with his wife. And he, and he sticks up for himself. And that extends to the fact that when there's that scene where the establishment gay men are talking about the plight of being an establishment gay man, which is obviously mm. written as basically that's the bit of propaganda that the audience is supposed to take home, which is, well, the criminalisation of homosexuality is all very unfair on these people of, of good breeding. Yes, but and, you
0: see, the, that's one of the things I like about Victim is that One of the moral centres of the film is the guy who's the ticket clerk in a tube station. He's the guy who puts himself out for other people, who genuinely likes the older woman who buys them all drinks. (coughs) He hides the photo album for the the kid that's in trouble with the law. He doesn't expect anything from anyone and just generally is a good person. And victim and of course what he is is essentially Robert Ross hmm. from Wild's Life it's a movie which doesn't make it just about the, the 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 upper class people are being convenient there's this thoroughly nice chap who's not got a very nice life whose life is a bit of a mess who nonetheless just puts himself out for people Fred
2: yeah yeah Who's the bloke in the pinstripe? He keeps looking at me.
1: I don't know. I used to come in the week, Chief, when I was there. A real lone wolf. i better go. See you. So long, Eddie. Yeah, cheers. Well, I don't know how you can stand them. Oh. Eddie and Fip and the rest of them. All the same, the all blooming lot. <laughs> I thought they amused you. Oh, good for a laugh, all right. Very witty at times. Generous, too. I hate the bloody guts. Hey! Don't look at me like that. Well, they're just not quite normal, dear. (laughs) What's it matter to you? If they had gammy legs or something, you'd be sorry for them. Sorry for them? Not me. It's all with excuses. Every newspaper you pick up, it's excuses. Environment, too much lovers' kids, too little lovers' kids. They can't help it. Part of nature. Well, to my mind, it's a weak rotten part of nature. And if they ever make it legal, They may as well license every other perversion.
2: Do you support the law? I am a lawyer. Do you ever hear from the Stainers, far? I was the old man's secretary, that's how I knew young Stainer killed himself. While you stayed alive, shrouded yourself in virtue, and married Judge Hankins' daughter, like an alcoholic takes a cure.
5: And he's he's a -a have-a-go hero, so I like the fact that when there's that conversation between the establishment gay men, one of them gives him a bit of lip, it's still Dirk Bogart, so he punches him. Yeah. He's still, you know, he's not a matinee idol, Dirk Bogart, but he's still man of action, Dirk Bogart, even though he's a gale by barrister.
0: Yeah. They're both admirable, both him and and this guy he hardly knows that his life interlocks with.
5: So something else um, leading on from Dirk Bogart punching somebody is him is beautifully crafted.
0: It does the London of that time perfectly. You know what things look like and it's it's this incredibly broad social panorama in the context, oh yes, of this propaganda film but also this very tight thriller.
5: It's a good thriller.
0: Where you actually don't know who the bad guys are. There are great red herrings. There is this guy who seems to be all right but is actually a quizling.
5: A lot of the films that we are trying to highlight or um, encourage people to reflect on are good, honest, hard-working films that just do their job. Yeah. And it's not that there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Victim would not be as good a film, and it's a great film. I mean, I hope people listen to this show and go and watch Victim. You
0: really, really should.
5: It's all online. Watch a beautiful film, Lovingly uh, Restored. Please, yeah. But if you can't afford that because the Blu-ray is quite expensive, you can find it online. Watch the film because it's it wouldn't work as an important film for the history of LGBTQ people in this country if it wasn't already a good film and a good thriller.
0: I mean, there are films that are social history because they're what there is. I mean, I'm afraid what the Killing of Sister George really does fall into that category. Whereas. Victim is just a really good film as well.
5: This is Music for Films, and you are listening to Resonance 104.4 FM in London and ResonanceFM.com. Now, so we've talked about Victim, but you've recorded some interviews with two very interesting yeah. people to further explore this sort of question about the significance of cinema to... Identity. And L- particularly LGBT identity. So set this up for us. So who are we talking to first?
0: We're talking to Teresa, who is an expert on women's film festivals and, to a lesser extent, LGBT film festivals, because that all has a long enough history now that it's an academic subject. And she's the person who knows and knows where it fitted in to the building of community and the building of a sense of identity and that way of looking back and constantly saying, where did this fit in, you know, how does lesbian and gay art film relate to propagandistic films? How does this tell us how the future can work? How does camp fit into an LGBT movie sensibility? Um, so which of the films made in code that we can now use in an era where, where, where things can be said openly? So it's it's been a way of the... F- Film festivals became a way in which once the community could be open about itself, it constructed its sense of its own memory and its own history through constantly looking backwards and
5: with new films forwards. And so when we've listened to Teresa, who are we listening to next?
0: We're listening to Brian, who for many years, almost since the beginning, has worked on the London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival and for many years now till this year has been the chief programmer of it. Um, we're astonishingly privileged to get so much of Brian talking
5: about this. Because this is kind of like the last opportunity when, at least with his kind of... Oh, he'll be around for a good his, time, his yeah. His head's still into, even though he's left Flair, he's kind of still yeah. in that zone, so... Yeah. Well, I, I'm really delighted that we can make this show and we can have, yeah. we talk to these guests. So, first of all, here's the interview with Teresa. So, Teresa,
0: the early LGBT film festivals came out of other identity film festivals, you say?
7: Yeah, I mean, I think they were definitely inspired uh, by them, and certainly in the case of women's film festivals. um, A lot of the sort of gay women who... um, helped set up the LGBT film festivals, had also worked on the women's film festivals.
0: What's the time span we're talking about? When when are the Mm. first women's film festivals as opposed to the first LGBT ones?
7: Okay, so the first women's film festival was in 1972, and it was the New York uh, Women's Film Festival. Uh, And then the first uh, LGBT uh, film festival, I guess, you know, at the time we would have called them gay film festivals, that was in 1977.
0: And Um, that's in Harvey Milk's camera shop?
7: Yes, and it was a (coughs) film festival of super eight films. And sorry, the uh, the women's film festival was the first international festival of women's films in New York. That was the full name.
0: And obviously, there was the 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 Harvey Milk Camera Shop Festival. Uh Um, What came of that, and when did um, San Francisco festivals get bigger?
7: So. The event at Harvey Milk Shop, that's really what became Frameline, you know, the festival that we know today. I mean, it went through kind of several iterations over the years, um, but it it was really, you know, it sort of had its roots in that event at the time.
0: How soon did it move into an actual cinema?
7: I don't know. (laughs) Fair enough. How
0: soon did the... uh, Where did the first women's film Uh, festival take place? In a cinema? uh,
7: Yeah, so they were sort of um, in a variety of places. So um, in the mid-70s, the New York uh, Women's Video Film Festival, they, um, at times, they had... um, They were in this place called the Women's Inter-Art Centre. So it was actually a space that was specifically... Sort of for women, although that was kind of rare. I mean, generally it would have been, you know, you know, sometimes in community centres, but yeah, also in cinemas. So, um, for example, the women's event in Edinburgh, which was also in 1972, uh, which was run as part of. Uh, the Edinburgh International Film Festival um, that was held in sort of you know local cinemas and so on Uh, then you've sort of got the Toronto uh, Women's uh, Film Festival which was also later in 1972 uh, and that was held in the St Lawrence Centre which at the time was uh, you know a building with like you know it it was really high up in the cultural hierarchy in Toronto at the time so there was a real range of locations actually
0: how much lesbian content would, would there have been in those women's film festivals, given the contr- controversy between mm-hmm. straight and lesbian feminists in that period?
7: There was some, uh, but there's also, you know, we also have kind of accounts that suggest that, you know, ultimately some women really did feel... Uh, so so you know, queer women really did feel a bit excluded. And, um, and so it was many of these that then went on to help found, yeah. uh, you know, run the LGBT film festivals because they'd had experience of doing that. Because
0: contextually, that's the whole period of people like Betty Friedan denouncing the Lavender Menace. Yeah, the menace. Lavender menace.
7: <laughs> So, I mean, I think initially there was this idea that, you know, the film festivals would, um, you know, appeal to all women. And there was certainly efforts that were made you know there were sort of programs uh, and films devoted uh to sort of you know sort of lesbian identified filmmakers and lesbian themed films and uh what was i going to (laughs) say so yeah so there was contact there were also programs that you know tried to sort of um sort of show films by uh, by women of color for example but yeah i mean ultimately i think what happened is that uh the film festival sort of they went down the route that so often happens, which is that, you know, they were predominantly run by white, middle-class women, although not exclusively. I mean, they were more diverse than you think.
0: To what extent did they run experimental film as opposed to Mm -hmm. mainstream narrative features?
7: Well, they were really, really mixed, and that was something that did spark some criticism. I mean... Uh so the New York event, so the first event in, in you know early seventy two, uh or sort of mid seventy two actually. Um I mean the program was massive. I mean there was mm-hmm. something like oh I think it was over two hundred films or something. Good and Lord. yeah, I mean it was absolutely huge. And that, that included slideshows as well. Um, and it included um, things like Machen in Uniform from the 30s, uh, Dorothy Artsner films from sort of the 40s, and then kind of experimental work uh, by people like uh, Maya Derren, um, Gunvor Nelson, um, and then sort of, um, yeah, just sort of uh, kind of more DIY, I guess, stuff that was also being made. So it, you know, the programme was huge and, and really varied.
0: So when people did the. Show in Harvey Milk's camera shop. What was the what was the program and how much of, of that was there, or was it just an evening?
7: As far as I know, that's that's actually going to come up in the in the next chapter, which I haven't properly researched yet. But of my you know of my my thesis, but um, I mean, as far as I know, it was kind of diverse, but I think mostly uh, would have been films by sort of gay male filmmakers uh, on sort of gay male themes
0: you've got a lot of gay film being made Mm -hmm. a lot of it experimental that was presumably just shown in standard experimental venues which because a lot of the people involved were gay Mm. didn't have a problem with it
7: yeah i mean some of the work would have things like
0: flaming creatures
7: right yeah so some of the work would have been shown at experimental film festivals avant-garde film festivals and so on Other than that, I mean, in terms of the women's films, I'm guessing sort of, uh, you know, community centres, sort of, you know, women's film nights and so on. But it was very hard to see this stuff. I mean, you know, they weren't, you know, these kind of films, LGBT films and sort of feminist or women-focused films were not really being shown in mainstream cinemas. Um, And so the film festivals really provided a a sort of much-needed space uh, in which the films could be seen.
0: Right. So when did first women's film festivals and then LGBT film festivals and uh, black film festivals find their way out of America?
7: Um, What do you mean? Do you mean sort of... To uh, both
0: here and to hmm. continental Europe and elsewhere?
7: Well, actually, um, in 1972, which is the same year of the New York event... um, there was um, an event as part of the Edinburgh International Film Festival uh, called the Women's Event, uh, and that was run by uh, Linda Miles. So that actually happened in the same year. Right. Yeah, so it was kind of concurrent, really.
0: Right. Now, which year does the London LGBT Film Festival start?
7: Right. So that has its roots. I'm just trying to pull up all my dates. Um, So that has its roots in um, a programme that Richard Dyer, you know, the film scholar uh, and critic um, Richard Dyer uh, organised called uh, Images of Homosexuality. So that ran at the National Film Theatre in 1977. Um, In 1986, um, that was sort of reformulated as Gay Zone Pictures, um, and the the title was actually drawn from a Timeside Film Festival, which first ran a program called Gay Zone Pictures.
0: Do we have the programs for those, or
7: they are available online, I think, um, and I'm sure they would be at the uh, the BFI archive, um, but it's not. You know, I right, haven't actually enough. sat down looking looked. So,
0: so the London, the L- London LGBT the london LGFF, <laughs> as it was then um that's now run for what 40 years yes <laughs> um what how, how were there at the same time similar things in first for women and then lgbt uh in i don't know germany france
7: yeah i mean I'm trying to think. I mean, certainly with women's film festivals at the time was the mid, sort of early, mid, late 70s. You know, you really get a lot cropping up um, in uh, in the USA and uh, in Europe. In terms of um, sort of LGBT and queer film festivals, yes. I mean, um, I'm trying to think of which other sort of. But a lot
0: of the time it's one off or runs for a couple of years and then it dies and then comes back.
7: Or it goes through lots of different iterations, uh, like like Frameline has done. Um, but certainly, you know, the late 70s, early 80s is when we see, you know, um, USA, UK, mainland Europe really starting to sort of, uh, you know, these sort of LGBT queer film festivals start to start to be founded.
0: And am I right in thinking that in countries where homosexuality, where feminism was massively disapproved of, running film festivals became one of the first things people did to demonstrate liberation.
7: Yeah, I think that's quite a fair um, a fair surmise, to be honest. Um, and it, it's something that we still see today you know film festivals as acts of resistance um there's a film festival that runs every year in moscow um you know under great um uh sort of pressures um and so yeah i mean we're still you know certainly at the time and in countries where um women's rights you know have not progressed so far and lgbt rights and so on you know film festivals are you know certainly used as a tool of resistance
0: in a way bigger because in a way It's harder for them to crack down on those things than on, say, a Pride march.
7: Yes and no. <laughs> uh-huh. um, I mean, certainly there's the idea that, um, you know, the attendees are not as visible, they're not necessarily, you know, marching on the streets and so on. In the uh, the LGBT film festival in St. Petersburg, um, for example, it's very, very uh, difficult for them to find spaces. And when, you know, the owners of venues find out what the venue is being used for, um, you know, they they tend to um, you know, then say they can't actually use it.
2: So I chaffed them and I, I, I gaily laughed to think that they could doubt my love and yet today my love has flown away and I'm without my love and now laughing friends deride tears I cannot hide so I smile and say When a lovely flame dies... ...smoke... ...gets in your eyes. So, Brian,
0: how long have you been programming the... ...what was then the London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival... ...and has gone through at least a couple of names since?
3: I've been a programmer at the festival for, I think, 18 years now. But I first set foot in the building in 1976 when I was very excited. um, And I thought, this is a place I want to belong. Um, The following summer, um, I went to a season of films called Images of Homosexuality. The Richard Dyer. The Richard Dyer season, which I think it's not too far-fetched to say that it changed my life, that I thought, oh, this is something that all big cities have, queer films in abundance. I didn't realise it was one of the first of its kind anywhere in the world. Um, What was on that programme? It was a programme of 35 films, um, and it had things like Fox and His Friends. Um, there was a Chinese epic about a warrior princess whose name entirely escapes me. Um... It was forty years ago. I know, <laughs> um, and I'm struggling to remember anything. Then, a kind of excited buzz of being in a cinema with lots of people who were queer.
0: Well, quite. I mean, that's a, 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 one of the interesting things about film festival, LGBT film festivals, as as it is about all identity related film festivals is that just by being there, there are a site of resistance.
3: I think certainly in 1977, um, the world was a very different place, and there weren't that many places apart from bars and some clubs that you could go and see large numbers of people. But to walk into a bar takes a certain amount of courage, and also you've got to be interested in alcohol, and usually your motive would be in picking somebody else up but the joy of going to a cultural event is that there's no pressure to do any of those things, that you're there to experience the drama or documentary and you can talk about it afterwards. Yeah. And
0: so you started off as a punter and graduated to being a service provider.
3: Well, very soon after, in fact, when I went up to university, I phoned the British Film Institute and asked what gay films they would recommend, and they had a, a horrible library. And so I set up a gay film society um, really the following year and have never looked back. I've always seen myself as a sort of gay cultural entrepreneur. I really privilege the spaces that are created by people, in whether it's in cabaret or theatre or dance or music that's queer, mm-hmm. because people do think, oh, in the era of, Will and Grace or Graham Norton, what more do you need? But there's a universe that we need that we're not properly served.
0: Yes, I mean, it's, it's absolutely necessary to create structure because structure makes resistance possible.
3: And I think people do have the illusion that everything is available Online and the internet is the answer, but I think there's something very powerful and motivating about being in a room with other people. Um, it's like going to to a church where you're worshiping from the same hymn sheet. Very mixed metaphor. Yeah. Though. Well,
0: this, this is true of all cinemas. I mean, it's this is a, a theme that this show endlessly recapitulates. Is the the idea of cinema as a sacred a sacred
3: space? Well, it is a temple, and we are its worshippers. And I suppose what's really good about the festival is that there's a kind of really shared understanding of why we are there. Um, and people do take away many different things from them. Um, but it's it's a very powerful bonding thing i mean the original latin derivation of the word religion is of course ligio meaning a bond and i i just feel that bonds are being created and it's not along the lines that you would necessarily think that it's not just the young and pretty talking to the young and pretty it's it's different ages sexualities orientations um political affiliations they find bonds
6: They asked me Well, oh, they...
3: I loved Dirk Bogard, I have to say, as a child. Um, one of my most memorable viewing experiences. Um, I don't know if it's appropriate for us to, to go into. Oh, absolutely. Now. Um, I can still remember the utter silence in the room when, on the television, it came up the words. Far Is Queer, and I was absolutely mesmerized, and I was so worried for the beautiful Dirk Bogart, who I really adored. And many years later, I, just after his death, I did a season entitled Two Stately Homos, one celebrating Quentin Crisp, the other Dirk Bogart, and I was informed that some members of the BFI were absolutely up in arms, that they disputed the fact that Dirk Bogard was a homo, um, in spite of a lot of evidence that there was at the time, although none from his own writings, sadly. Victim, we cannot underestimate its importance in terms of queer cinema history. It's the first film where the word homosexual is actually spoken. In a film, and it's actually within the space of a minute, um, they say the word homosexual twice and homosexuality. And there'd been films where there were relationships, there were looks, there were kind of hints, there were nods, there were nudges and winks, but here was a film that just took it absolutely uncontrovertibly as its subject matter, the marketing campaign for the film was something else altogether. You could have seen every single poster, read the press book and read lots of articles about victim without knowing what the blackmail issue was. And it's very interesting that it started off as an X and in its journey through um, the British Board of Film Classifications history that it is now, I think, classifiable as... A 12 um, which not many films have gone from an X to a 12. It's a film that's very interesting for its trajectory through the censorship system because it took five years in the research and writing but many months of negotiations with the censor um, who was quite new in the job at the time and the writers Janet and John Green um, had several very nice lunches with the censor um, to discuss the plot and and what would happen. And they had lots of correspondence before it was officially submitted. And they were able to get away with quite a lot that other films hadn't at the time. And there'd been a couple of biopics of Oscar Wilde, which nodded towards the facts of Oscar Wilde being a homosexual. But you weren't exactly sure what he'd done with Alfred Lord Douglas unless you really already knew um, and there's a, a letter from the the censor to the production team saying I really think there are too many queers in this film we don't want to give ordinary decent people the notion that there's too much of this stuff going on and he insisted that they take out a young person um, that they didn't want young people to get the notion that they could be queer or that it was something that should be encouraged Maybe we should talk a little bit about Against the well, Law. Well,
0: we, we were coming to Against yes. the Law. Um, we have a little time. Um, but, yes, Against the Law was the first night gala at Flair this year. It's an account of the Peter Wildblood, Mon- Lord Montague of Bewley and other person trial, Um which led to Peter Wildblood very bravely writing his book against the law and also to his testifying openly about his homosexuality to Wolfenden, to the Wolfenden Committee, which recommended partial decriminalisation. It also includes a lot of documentary footage of survivors of that period, now then very young men, in most cases now very old men, and... It features an absolutely stunning performance by Daniel Mays.
3: I think it it was a great way to open the festival and it kind of heralds some of the riches that, that are to come through the the summer of, of marking the 67 Act. Um, it's very, very well written by Brian Phyllis, who you may know from an Englishman in New York. Yes. Um, and I... I was nervous when I heard about this mix of, of documentary and um, and drama. Um, but actually, I think it really... They illuminate each other. Yeah. is that when you have a scene that you think, oh, maybe this is a little bit far-fetched, and someone actually gives you their testimony of living that experience. Um, and one of the co-producers of the film was the Wellcome Foundation, um, and they were particularly keen that accurate details of things like aversion therapy were were gone into with absolute clarity and and truth.
0: Yes, I mean, that that, that bit of documentary footage was absolutely terrifying because people tend not to realise just how brutally aversion therapy was used. People would be forced to empty their stomach and their bowels and lie in filth, often for days.
3: And it's a huge effort to really cast your mind back to... I mean, it's almost like kind of Nazi torturers that... And one presumes that the people had the best interests of their their patients at heart, the medical profession, perhaps, but it just almost beggars belief that this was was commonly done... Um, I read a very moving account by Tony Warren in his autobiography about it being done to him. Mm. Um, But the graphicness and the horror really do show um, how far we have come and how wonderful it is that both medical opinions and the law have changed so radically.
5: That was a lovely interview. Roz, thank you so much for doing that. I learned a lot from that. And um, that was music for films.
0: That was music for films.
5: For another month.
0: For another month.
5: Next month, we are talking about The Ripper. Ah. Oh. Sherlock Holmes. We're revisiting the interview we did with Kim Newman. in And right. Martin Whitechapel. Ba-boom. And then it's going to be a Sherlock Holmes two-partner, so after that, we'll be in Baker Street. Gosh. Exploring. You see how I link all these things yeah. together? The private life of Sherlock Holmes. Right. Was Sherlock Holmes gay? No. No. But, you know... Who's counting? Yeah, why not? Sure.
2: You must feel very strongly in this subject to risk losing possibly a large part of your, of your following by appearing in such a bitterly controversial film. I don't think so. No. Um, uh, th- you see, I told you a little while ago that uh, the the parts were not always so good. Yeah. Uh, this is a marvellous part, and in the film, I think that is it is tremendously important because it doesn't pull any punches. It's quite honest. Mm-hmm. It isn't. I don't have to use any old tricks for the fans. It's a straightforward yeah. character performance, which is what I've been. You're made to for. look much older than you are in the picture. I play my own age, yes. which is forty, but I I have to look <laughs> rather older than that because. I, you know... We I don't look at let it be said. No, let it be said. But uh, I don't think that uh, this... Everybody said, oh, why did you make such a controversial picture? This is ridiculous. Um, actors are here for that. Yes. Uh, you get stuck with rows of boring pictures that people go to see forever. People will go and see this film, I'm quite sure, and thoroughly enjoy it, or be distressed by it, or, but they will be moved somehow by
0: it. You've been listening to music films on Resonance 104.4 FM and... ResonanceFM.com,
5: And you can find an archive of all our old shows on thebeekeepers.com
0: Often with massive extensions and annexes.
5: This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4
0: FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at
4: fundraiser.resonance.fm.